Thanks for checking out this sermon from Christ the King in Carrollton, Georgia, where our goal is to glorify God by making, training, and sending disciples to engage our neighbors and the nations with the gospel of Jesus. If you want to learn more about us, you can find us online at ctkcarrollton.com, or better yet, join us on a Sunday in Carrollton. Um, open up to uh, Genesis chapter 41. We're going to be in part two of Genesis 41. Again, um, as is not uh, unusual, I had fairly lofty expectations and aspirations last week of completing all of Genesis 41. And uh, I think it took us about seven minutes to realize that wasn't going to happen. So we are in part two this week. But before we get there, I wanted us to, to kind of reflect back on where we have been in this second half of the book of Genesis while looking ahead at where we are going. Again, it's been almost a year that we've been in the book of Genesis. In fact, we've only taken a handful of breaks. I think we've had maybe a couple standalone sermons. We've had the season of Advent. Easter uh, was a a little bit different, right? Uh, But for the most part, we've been in the book of Genesis for almost a year. And so there's this thing, and you might be feeling it, and it's called sermon fatigue, (laughs) okay? And it kind of like comes about when you spend a lot of time in a, uh, in, in like, one book, right? Like you've been coming in here and you've been turning very slowly through your Bibles. And that can be a little bit exhausting. We are unapologetic about that. Okay. Like I'm sorry, not sorry. Kind of is the way I'm going to go about doing that right there. Um, but, uh, it's a thing. And so in order to maybe help bring us all along, you've been, been away for a little while or, or summers are crazy, right? Um, you've been serving, you've been missing weeks, kind of trying to figure out where we are and what's going on. Uh, I want us to watch a quick video in just a moment, um, from the guy at the Bible Project. Um, just a moment before we start. Um, this is going to help us to, uh, to kind of understand where we've been while looking ahead at where we are going. Let's watch this for just a few minutes. Right? How helpful are the guys at the Bible Project? Their resources are, are awesome. And um, we even got a few laughs in there, uh, right? Um, kind of the way we see the story illustrated. Um, so this is where we've been and it's where we're going. And so if you kind of uh, just showed up this morning, you're like, okay, well, spoiler alert, everything that we're going to see this morning was in like a 0.02 portion of the video that we just watched. And we kind of know how things are going to turn out, but we're embracing the tension. Okay, we're kind of embracing the tension. We're walking through the story, uh, and uh, and this morning we're tackling part two of Genesis twenty, uh, Genesis forty one. So let's think a little bit about what we observed last week. Okay, last week we looked almost exclusively at God's perfect timing in the life of Joseph, coupled with the centrality of God through Joseph's explanation of his gift of interpretation, right? That's the first half of Genesis 41. Let me summarize that for a moment, okay? Um, God, at just the right moment, um, draws and and lifts Joseph out of prison. We kind of saw that happen through a little bit of a, like, a, like a teleportation image that was uh, going on in the Bible Project video. Uh, we talked about that last week. We're going to pick up on this this week as well. Uh, but in this conversation, conversation with Pharaoh around these really strange dreams. I'm talking really strange dreams. If you weren't here for part one of Genesis 41, go back and read it later. Um, We observed, as we see penned here, um, cannibalistic cows and corn. It was quite a week last week, right, Uh, is where we were. And so um, Joseph kind of comes along and and through this gift of interpretation, there is this this emphasis on the centrality of God, okay, that God is the one um, who, who defines 
defines and, and makes order and provides wisdom and discernment. That's where the emphasis is from Joseph's perspective as he engages in this dialogue with who is arguably one of the most powerful men on earth, if not the most powerful. All the magician in Egypt, they're called, they're unable to make sense. Joseph is. Joseph shares, he stands strong, um, communicates faithfully God's word, and in doing so, he makes it clear that God has fixed these events in time, and there is nothing that Pharaoh or anyone else can do to overthrow God's plan. Famine is coming, right? We are about to have a really stellar seven years, but after that is going to be this incomprehensible famine on the land. Very dangerous, right? And you share this news with Pharaoh, and um, if there is any expectation that Pharaoh himself will take charge and he will right this wrong, and there is a, some type of a path of avoidance, Joseph just just decimates that. He says there is no avoiding. This is what God is going to do. He is at the same time going to provide a path of provision. Look at what we see in verse 33. So we're kind of reviewing some things that we saw last week. Look with me at Genesis 41 verse 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man set him over the land of Egypt. This is, this is Joseph's feedback in light of what is coming inevitably. Verse 34, let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. Okay, so there's this plan that's being laid out, right? Seven years of, of famine are coming, really dangerous. A lot of people looking to and relying on us for food and for provision. Consequence of failure to prepare appropriately would be death, right? And so Joseph said, here's the plan. Store up this food in these cities. Let them keep it. Verse 36, that food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine, right? So there's this, there's this pushing back against the famine that is to occur, right? In the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. Now, this is where we stepped away last week. And so as we transition back into the story, it's helpful for us to know how we see Pharaoh's response to Joseph's interpretation. Joseph's elevation, Egypt's preparation, and finally the actualization of the famine in the land. We cover again. As has become somewhat common in the book of Genesis, a lot of time in just a few verses, okay? So in the second part, we're literally going through this, this plentiful season as well as this difficult season of famine. We see it both laid out for us as we, um, as we, proceed, uh, as we proceed forward. So um, here's kind of a, a main idea that I want us to consider this morning, a, a thesis of sorts that we will seek to unpack as we tackle this second part. So if you take notes, uh, write this down. It will not be on the screens, but I will repeat it uh, a number of times. And I'll say it slowly. So here you go. Um, God lifts the needy from brokenness and despair. This is part one. Okay. God lifts the needy from brokenness and despair. God lifts the needy from brokenness and despair. 
Now here it is. I'm about to, I'm about to give you guys part two. Okay. So like, imagine this dot, dot, dot. Okay. Part two. Here we go. Demonstrated through Joseph's rise to authority. Demonstrated through Joseph's rise to authority. As God works to suppress death and sustain his people. Let me give you this this again, okay? Kind of one, one thought this time. God lifts the needy from brokenness and despair. Demonstrated through Joseph's rise to authority as God works to suppress death and sustain his people. Man, this is the big thing, right? This is the big thing. This is the big idea. This is what we see as we come into part two of Genesis chapter 41. So let's begin to break this thing up and let's try to understand it a little bit better. Okay, are we ready? Are we ready? Yes. Yep. All right, here we go. God lifts Joseph out of despair and distress. Let's begin here. God lifts Joseph out of despair and distress. Now, if you were here last week, this is a bit of a review, but it's, it's so important to the story that I think it's worthy of us going back and articulating again. I want us to consider for just a moment the emotional roller coaster that is Joseph's life. The emotional roller coaster that is Joseph's life. What have we seen since our introduction to Joseph? He has been rejected by his brothers. He has been slandered by his master's wife. He's been imprisoned falsely. And most recently, forgotten by one of those who he helped. Now, in order for us to remain most faithful to the text, which is always our desire, as far as we can go is to say that the probability exists that Joseph has felt a certain degree of hopelessness given the amount of time that has passed while his circumstances have remained largely unchanged. Now, we don't have anything from the passage itself that says to us, Joseph is in the pits, other than the literal pit that he happens to find himself in. But, right, we are familiar with human experience. We're familiar with difficult circumstances. And so I think it is somewhat safe for us to assume that there were moments, if not prolonged seasons of this feeling of a certain degree of hopelessness. So much time has passed and Joseph's circumstances have remained largely unchanged. Hope has moved into the cell and then hope has moved out of the cell and Joseph is still just hanging out waiting to see what is going to happen next. That is, of course, until we come to verse 37. So look with me at Genesis 41 beginning in verse 37. Joseph has just laid out this plan, right, for the, for the sustainment of the people, the suppression of death. How will Pharaoh respond? Verse 37, Joseph's proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. 
And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Now, let's say this about who Pharaoh is and and, and try to understand a little bit more clearly what he says here in verse 38. Pharaoh, of course, lacks clarity concerning the weight of what he has just said. Okay, if you're in the room and you're a Christian and we've talked this morning, we've sang this morning about the Spirit's work to to reveal and to bring about knowledge of who He is, our own sin as we are led into a position of repentance. Man, the Spirit works this way. He helps us to, to understand and to discern and to, and to see most clearly what is going on in the world around us, to understand who He is, to understand who we are. Pharaoh has just made this statement that seems to initially articulate the Spirit's presence therein and with Joseph. However, Pharaoh does not know this God. In fact, Pharaoh, as we've said a number of times, actually would have seen himself, having been seen by the people, as a God of sorts. He makes this really powerful theological statement, right? Where can we find a guy like this? We need somebody in charge. We need somebody to, to map this whole thing out and to lay this whole thing out so that death might indeed be suppressed. That is the goal, right? If we don't suppress death, if there is not this suppression of death, then what happens? Then we come to the end of this seven years and if we don't have a plan in place, like everyone dies, And so we need a plan. We need a a plan and a a purpose and a way in which that which is to most certainly take place is kind of held, held back. At least it's consequence to a certain degree. Who are we going to find better than this guy? Who are we going to find better than Joseph? In whom is the spirit of God? There's this weighty theological statement from Pharaoh, but it is certainly one that lacks clarity. You and I, however, right, can, can read this statement and we can appreciate the accuracy of this observation in a way that Pharaoh cannot. Right Upon the, the backdrop of brokenness and injustice, we know, as has been articulated over and over and over and over again through this story, that God is indeed with Joseph. This is your best bet. This is your best option. Indeed, God is residing with Joseph. He is empowering Joseph to stand for and articulate truth. Pharaoh sees this. He says something like this. But in terms of full understanding and comprehension, Pharaoh is left lacking. We, however, can look into the story at this point and truly appreciate who God is and what he is doing. Joseph has been able to and is currently able to rest in what he knows as opposed to what he feels in light of his current reality. Let me say that one more time because that's huge. We're going to talk about it, but let me say it again. Okay, Joseph, because God is with Joseph, empowering him to stand for and articulate truth, is able to rest in what he knows as opposed to what he feels in light of his current reality. We said earlier, right, that we would be uh, fair, right, to say that there were likely moments or seasons of hopelessness as these circumstances, difficult circumstances for Joseph, have gone largely unchanged. So what do you do? What is Joseph to do at this point? Where does he go? Where does he find hope? Where does he find refuge? 
Well, he can't go to what he feels, can he? (laughs) Because how do you feel when you're like stranded in a pit? Not great. You're forgotten. You're left there, right? After, after you've seen others come in, you've served them from a position of leadership as we saw way back when, when we talked about that. They leave promising to remember you, only you have been forgotten. Uh, if you're familiar with Alistair Begg, some of you may be, some of you may not be. Alistair Begg made a statement that this past week while we were at Can, we actually articulated a number of times because we needed to go back on occasions to what we knew and not what we felt. Okay, here's what Alistair Begg says. And I'm going to paint the picture for you a little bit because I do think it's super helpful. Alistair Begg is a pastor, okay, and he's, he's telling this story. He's actually going off a little bit, okay. So uh, I'm, I'm going to step up onto, uh, step up onto the soapbox with, with Sir Alistair and give you guys kind of a little bit of the context of what's going on here. So he's talking about how he went to this church uh, and he was, he was visiting there. Um, and I don't know if he was speaking or if he just went or whatever. And he, he talked about something that was said by the worship leader that uh, just crawled his frame, man. You guys are familiar with that terminology, right? Crawled his frame, like really upset him, got him in a bad spot, okay? So he's talking about what he says, and then he talks about like why he feels the way he does about what he says. So, and we've all done this. In fact, we've, I've done this here, right? And so confession time before you all, like I'm trying to write this wrong, okay? So guy gets up on stage and he, he looks out and he asks everybody, he says this, not uncommon, How's everybody feeling this morning, right? You heard that. I mean, like you've heard that here before. I'm sure I've stood up here. How are you guys feeling? Walt, stood up. Everybody feeling good? Jacqueline, everybody feeling good? How are we feeling this morning, right? And Alistair, go, he proceeds to talk about like, man, I don't need to like think about how I feel, right? You want to know how I feel? This is kind of the picture he paints. He said, well, here's how I feel. So we woke up late. My alarm didn't go off. Like my kids were running around the house like crazy. We didn't get any food in anybody. We got in a fight on the way. I kicked the dog as I was walking out the front door. And now I'm here late, right? And I forgot my Bible, right? Like that type of thing, right? And he goes, so this is the picture he's painting. He's going, don't ask me how I feel. I don't feel good, right? Like I don't feel good. Maybe you're in that place this morning, right? We're kind of reflecting back on where Joseph is in the, in the moment. This is his line, okay? That's the context. Here's the line. He says, don't tell me how you feel. Tell me what you know. All right, so let's, let's shift perspective on it slightly. Don't ask me how I feel. All right, ask me what I know. I put myself in the position of, of Joseph in the pit, right? And, and I get this idea, as I would imagine many of us do, as we're connecting with the Joseph narrative to a certain degree as best as we can. And we say, yeah, there are seasons where it would be, it would be better for me not to lean into my feelings and to respond in light of those, but to fall back on truth and respond in light of that. Are you guys following me here? Are we trekking together? Our feelings are, are kind of all over the place, aren't they? Like emotional highs and, and lows. Last Sunday, we left, um, we left to go to, to, to youth camp. And um, so myself and Mac and, and Jacqueline, we got in the car, loaded it all up. Like, I mean, it was insane. There was stuff everywhere. Jacqueline sat inside a cornhole board all the way to Franklin. It was pretty impressive. And so we get there and we're unloading stuff. We're putting it in the, in the trailer. And uh, we're like, okay, we're ready to go. Panama City, here we come. So we get down there and we spend the night. Next day, we get up early, get into our space 
space and begin to set up only to realize at the very end that we left all of the decorations that we had taken a whole day to paint and prepare in Mac's car in Franklin. It was a low moment, (laughs) okay? Things were said, apologies were later made, right? Like we weren't feeling great, okay? In that moment, it would have been it would have been most helpful to go back to what we knew was true as opposed to how we felt. Or what do we know is true? The the the, the this emphasis, this uh this summarization of the book of Genesis thus far draws us back to the promise of the Lord, doesn't it? Like we saw these little coins come up, promise, 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 being articulated to this family over and over and over again. Trouble, difficult circumstance, trial, time after time after time after time. Where is the emphasis? The emphasis is on the promise of the Lord, right? When we don't, when we don't feel it, right, what might be a better practice? To go to what we know. What do we know? We know that God is faithful. We know that God meets our needs. We know that he stays with us. Everybody else may leave, but he never will. He keeps us. He grows us. He's committed to growth in us. He uses us for his glory and and the good of those around us. This is is who God is, and this is what he does. He He is holy, and he's kind. He's compassionate, and he's merciful. As I consider where Joseph found himself, I would imagine that there were that there were moments in which reflecting back on what the Lord had at this point revealed about himself would have been all that Joseph had. So note to take for you and I as we work through this passage. Joseph has cause for certain emotions. He's undoubtedly wrestling with, as do many of us. Or maybe you're here this morning and you literally have carried in a sack full of troubles. Broken families, broken and difficult marriages, difficult pasts, difficult presents, feelings of doubt, confusion surrounding certain real events in your life, maybe a certain degree of anger. If you're in this position this morning, Know this, that there is good news from Genesis 41. And that good news is this, that there is cause for hope. That there is cause for hope. We see opportunity to cling to hope through the life of Joseph. In order to see it, we need to go back a little bit. We need to go back to Genesis 37 and begin in verse 5. This is a source of hope, a source of encouragement for Joseph. Listen to what we read all the way back in chapter 37. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. So this is all the events leading up to his imprisonment, right? To his being sold into slavery, venturing on down into Egypt. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. At this point in the story, we place a lot more emphasis on the dreams of Joseph, don't we? On his ability to interpret and comprehend and discern dreams. 
So we go back and we go, okay, well, I'm listening now. This makes, this makes maybe a little bit more sense. Hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaths in the field. And behold, my sheath arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaths gathered around it and bowed down to my sheath. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and he told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But then he told it to his father and brothers and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves to the ground before you? Flash forward to Genesis 41, verse 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. Verse 41. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and he put it on Joseph's hand. Again, this would have been an act that would have provided this this level and degree of authority to Joseph. He is able to, to sign off, to mark. Decisions that are in need of, of being made. He clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or foot in the land of Egypt. Let's put these ideas together. Genesis 37, Genesis 41. God had promised in Genesis 37 to elevate Joseph. Now, there is no way that Joseph could have understood this promise to mean that he would rise to the level of second in command in Egypt. Yet, as we look back, we are able to see so clearly his path to this moment. Consider what God has done. And God has kept Joseph from death on multiple occasions, beginning there with his brothers who desired to kill them, electing instead to sell him into slavery. God has prospered Joseph's hand. All the while acting only as God can, inspiring dreams that would lead others toward Joseph. And in response to God's persistence, which is an attribute of the Lord that we learn through the Joseph narrative. God is persistent. He is working for the good of his people, the glory of his name, and the accomplishing of his mission. In response to God's persistence, Joseph practices faithfulness. In every season, we observe faithfulness. In the pit, faithfulness. Commitment, reliance, humility, belief, service. H.B. Charles, a pastor and a name worthy of remembering. If anybody's listening or looking for podcasts, H.B. Charles has a great one I would encourage you to listen to. said this of Joseph's rise. It's a lot of application here. 
He says this, that Joseph did not endure the pit, Potiphar's house, and prison because he knew he would end up in Pharaoh's palace. He simply remained faithful wherever he found himself. And God did the rest. Joseph had cause for hope in light of God's promise in Genesis 37 that assisted in fueling his faithful response in the difficult circumstances he would experience through his time in Egypt. Are you getting the picture here? That which Joseph hears and and sees and bears witness to in Genesis 37 serves to inform the way that he responds in the multitude of ways through the difficult years and experiences that would follow. So how does this speak toward the hope available to you and I? Because that's where this train started, right? Like there is cause for hope. That is the good news. Broken marriages, broken friendships, family's a mess, work is a nightmare, like living mission is the last thing on your mind because you're just trying to make it, worshiping and adoring Jesus, backseat because we're just plowing ahead. How does what we see here in Genesis 41 speak toward the hope available to you and I? Listen to what one particular contributor to Desiring God had to say. He says, it's easy to feel ashamed for living a boring life of faithfulness to an ancient God, a life defined by a quiet pursuit of holiness and humility. But we shouldn't feel discouraged by our ordinary lives of faithfulness. For the fruit of our ordinary faithfulness in this temporary life is everlasting joy. He looks ahead to the New Testament and he provides us a real New Testament example illustration of this. He says, in Jesus's parable of the talents, the master says to his servant, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. This is found in Matthew chapter 25. And then he says this. He says, may God make us content living ordinary lives of faithfulness instead of reaching for novelties and clutching the wind. No novelty can rival the joy our master has stored up for us. What is the hope of Genesis 41? For those struggling, for those experiencing and encountering hardship, for those of you who who know and love people who are experiencing and encountering hardship, where do we point? To whom do we point? We trust in the faithful provision of the Lord. Or we trust in the faithful provision of God. We look to him. We cast ourselves upon him. We say, you are most faithful. And as Joseph has articulated, there is nothing that derails your plan. You're committed and you're persistent. And these these realities of who God is inspires for us a certain posture. It inspires us to pick up the hope that is available in and through Christ and to move forward. 
not only to, to move forward, but to respond appropriately in light of the difficulty that we are currently experiencing or encountering. If you're in this room and you're going, man, I can, I got about five people in my life that I can chalk difficulty up to. Like these guys are constantly producing within me for whatever reason, feelings of, of animosity and dread. We need to not only move forward, but we need to move forward in a most God glorifying gospel inspired way. So where do we go? How do we fall back in the same way that Joseph falls back into who he knows God to be and the plan that he is working to bring about? So too, we lean in. We do the ordinary, everyday, boring things, desiring to practice faithfulness. Get this, this is good. As we, as we cling to the sufficiency of the gospel. We cling to the sufficiency of the gospel and we respond in light of. And there is cause for hope in your life. Why? Well, because we're able to, to, to step back and we, we're able to, to observe, right? This, this beautiful display. Pointing here to the Lord's table, right? Because, because we're reminded of where to look as we, as we observe, right? Where do we look? We look to the cross. We look to Jesus. We cling to him. We, we hold to him. And we know that through the power of the resurrection, there is cause for hope in our lives. Come what may. Are we feeling okay? So a few more things that we need to say. We're not going into part three, <laughs> okay? So we've got a little bit of time. Let's try to wrap this thing up. Not only do we, um, do we see that there is this, um, that there is this hope that, that Joseph to cling to in light of what he has experienced and knows to be true in light of who God is, but the same is true for us. We continue forward and we see that God places Joseph in a position of authority as he calls him into his service. Joseph has a new position of authority. This is important because here's the deal. As God's people, you and I have new positions of authority. What we see in light of this informs the way that we understand our living and participating in this world. Let's go to verse 50 and let's read through the end. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. I'm going to kind of weave my way through here so that we can, we, can, we can get to the idea. Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh, for he said, listen, what he knows even informs his response here. God has made me forget all my hardship and my father's house. All my hardship, that's a lot of hardship. That's a whole lot of hardship. And yet Joseph says, God has made me forget all of my hardship. We see ideas communicated in the New Testament that mirror this, right? That our suffering in this life is, is momentary. Right? It's, 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 it's short. God accomplishes amazing things through it. But we can, we can look ahead and we can know that it is but for a season. That there is this, this truth, this gospel hope that makes us to forget all of our hardships. We identify with Joseph as we read through. I'm gonna, we're going to kind of weave this together. Verse 52, uh, the name of my second, he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. 
God informs Joseph's response to Pharaoh as the story begins. And then as there is just this increasing level and degree of authority and blessing, Joseph continues to go back and respond in light of who God is and what he has accomplished. Verse 53. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt, they came to an end, 54. And the seven years of famine began to come. Just as Joseph had said, there was famine in all lands, but in the land of Egypt, there was what? There was bread. In the land of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. This is, this is a beautiful picture. And actually, there's a sense in which we are able to identify ourselves with Pharaoh in it. Only we point to a, a, a truer and better. Right? We've got starving people who, who come to Pharaoh and they go, we've got nothing. The land is famished. It is ravaged. Cloud has settled in. Despair is deep. Where do we go? We need food. What does he say? He says, go to Joseph. Right, go to Joseph. There's a great picture of the Christian life in this, this very simple short statement that is as follow, follows, that, that we are simply beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. As Christians, that's the way that we live our lives. We are, we are beggars. We are insufficient in and of ourselves to save, sustain, feed, nourish ourselves. But God in his grace and compassion and love has, has, has so pursued and transformed our hearts and, and called us into friendship and fellowship with him that we now live lives that are totally and radically transformed by the gospel. As a result, we go out and famished people come. We are starving. Where in the world do we find nourishment? Where do we find sustenance? How do we, how do we live? What do we do as Christians? We are beggars who point others towards the great provider who meets our need and, and nourishes our soul. We identify with Pharaoh because Pharaoh said, go to Joseph. Only we say, go to Jesus. Verse 56 so when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was so severe over all the earth. There is something that God is doing in and through Joseph. People are being, are being drawn to him because he has something that meets their need, not their greatest need, but it meets their need. In like manner as God's people, we live in a, we live in a world, we live in communities, we live in real life communities. I want you to imagine your neighborhood for a minute. I want you to imagine the streets that you live on for a minute. I want you to imagine your workplaces for a minute. And then I want us to, to step back and I want us to ask the question of how what we see here in Genesis 41 informs the way that we understand our place and position in these places. 
We go into our neighborhoods and we go into our, we go into our streets. We are sent out. Here we see God drawing as he will continue to do so through the efforts of his people. But, but here people are coming. The New Testament paints this picture of, of the Christian life as a going life. Again, we said that in the beginning, didn't we? Let's connect it to the rhythms of, of our church. We sing together, we dismiss children, and then we go and greet one another. Why? Well, because we live going lives. The Great Commission informs this. Right, in just a, a few minutes, we are going to, you're going to get up out of your seat and you're going to come. You're going to go to the table. You're going to take of the bread and the cup in which we are reminded of the work of Christ to rescue, to save us from our sins. We're going to go and we're going to give of our tithes and our offerings, our gifts to the Lord because the Lord is, has blessed us and he has cared for us. And now our desire is to give our entire selves to him. The gospel transforms the way that we live our lives. The word of God informs the way that we live our lives. We live going lives. And so when you think about your streets and your neighborhoods and your places of employment and your friend groups, we go as a people heralding the gospel that there is bread available for hungry and famished souls that God has provided. Here he provides in the form of of this storehouse of, of grain, right? But at the cross, we see that he provides through the sacrifice of the son. This source of righteousness, Christ, we turn from our sins and we cling to him. We're made new. Our hearts are transformed. We come to to love and adore Jesus and value the gospel. This is where we are. And this is what we observe God doing, not just here in Genesis 41, but through redemptive history. However, it does have a place in Genesis 41. We started with this idea and this is where we are going to close Right? We started this idea of God through Genesis 41 and the, and the wisdom of Joseph that is indeed a gift suppressing death. He's suppressing death. If not for God's work and bringing about wisdom and discernment in the life of Joseph, what happens? We asked the question in the beginning. Let's come back to it. Everybody dies. Why? Well, because there's no food. There's this line that is promised. We saw it in the video earlier. God's people, by which, through whom will come the son who will give himself as a sacrifice for many. All those people, they die. What is God doing through Genesis 41? Where does Genesis 41 fit in the redemptive narrative? He is suppressing death. He's pushing it down. So that life might persist. So that the son might come and make available this abundant life. This life that we could have never accomplished on our own. That we could never grasp. We never work ourselves into. Genesis 41 has a beautiful place in the story of redemption. The question that you and I have to ask is how does what we read here inform the way that we live our lives, the way that we look to and, and trust in Jesus, the way that we desire a practice of faithfulness that points others towards the beauty of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, the glory and hope of the resurrection. I want to close with this quote because I think it, it summarizes kind of where we are as we, as we close out this story. We all love the fairy tale ending of Joseph's story. We're not even at the end yet. We know what's coming. There's reconciliation. Not only is death suppressed, but reconciliation is a result. Joseph and his family, they're going to be reconciled. You and I, we can be reconciled as God suppresses death through the sacrifice of Jesus, making eternal life possible. 
We love the fairy tale ending of Joseph's story, and we should, because Joseph's life is a foreshadowing of a heavenly reality. God sent his son to die and be raised in order to what? In order to set his children free, John 8, verse 36. There is coming a day when those who are faithful, even to death, Revelation chapter 2, will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master, Matthew 25. Our current circumstances, however dismal, however successful, are not our story's end. They are chapters in a much larger story that does have a really, really happy ending. Let's consider these truths as we come to the table. If you are here and like you don't know Jesus, I'm going to chill right here. I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you about what what it means to turn from your sin and to trust in Christ to to throw yourself upon his faithfulness so that we might live spirit-empowered faithfulness in obedience to our king. We serve at the pleasure of our king. I want to talk to you more about what that looks like. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we are grateful for your love for us. We are grateful for the faithfulness of Jesus. We are grateful for the sacrifice of Jesus. We are grateful that you have through Christ and his work on the cross, the power and hope and joy of the resurrection suppressed death. That while we have been dead, while we were once dead in our sins and in our trespasses, you sought us and you bought us with the redeeming blood of Christ. We celebrate that we have life here and now while looking ahead to this eternal hope and this eternal future. You are a good God. And we are grateful that you have, that you have stooped in the person of Christ and saved us from our sin. Help us to, to worship and live in light of these realities as we close out our time as your people. We love you and we are grateful for your love for us. And it's in the name of Jesus, our King, that we pray. Amen. Amen. While these guys uh, prepare to lead us in a a song, um, I want to invite you, if you're a Christian, to come to the table and to take of the bread and the cup. I'm going to chill right here. Um, And if you're not a Christian, you want to know what it looks like to follow after Jesus. Um, Take me by the arm. I want to chat with you. I want to to talk. Um, In addition, this is a time of response. And so um, we we give of our tithes and offerings. We We drop our connection cards in the box. Take a step today. What does that look like for you? Let's come to the table and let's celebrate the finished work of Jesus as God's people.